growing up in church, I've heard a lot of pastors give their testimonies about being saved. Most of the pastors that we had growing up gave very similar testimonies. They were saved at very young ages and lived for Jesus pretty much all of their lives. Joe, can you turn this down a little bit? There may have been a moment or two of sassing their parents or acting out in anger, but all of their lives were characterized by living for Jesus. Those testimonies made me nervous when I felt that God was calling me to preach because as much as I wish that was my testimony, it's just not. I wasn't saved until I was 19, almost 20 years old. I sort of lukewarmishly lived for Jesus for about a year, and then I enlisted in the regular army and went to Berlin, Germany. Berlin, Germany offered a, a myriad of worldly temptations that weren't available to an Oki from Muskogee. And I'd like to say that I fought the good fight of faith and overcame these temptations, but that would be a lie. I arrived in Berlin on a Wednesday, my first real Exposure to the worldly temptations of Berlin was on Friday, and, and I gave in shortly thereafter. I started a two-year period of time where I regularly made some of the worst moral decisions I could possibly have made. During this time period, I, I did things I would not feel comfortable to tell a very close friend, much less you as the people that God allows me to preach to on a regular basis. The season of my life has caused me many problems. I felt and I was very far from God. It took me a long time to, to share with Kelly the things that, that I had done. Even today, I'm pretty much shaking as I'm talking about these things with you. And at various times in my life, the enemy of my soul, he, he brings up my past and uses it to accuse me. In these times, I feel a great sense of shame for the things that I've done. In these times, I, I wonder what kind of person even does the sorts of things that I've done. I begin to ask, who do I think that I am to stand in front of anyone and try to instruct them in the ways of righteousness? In these times, I doubt my ability to effectively serve Jesus or bring glory and honor to God in any way. And I tell you this today because there may well be someone here who knows what it is to have things in their past they're ashamed of. Things that on good days you don't think of, and on bad days they weigh you down and cause you to wonder if deep down you're still the same person. Or if maybe there is someone out here and you're still in that place and you've just about decided there's no way out for you. I want you to know that there is. I want you to know that God and His grace are greater than our past, our sins, and our failures. The passage of Scripture we're going to look at today will hopefully drive this point home for all of us. Open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. It's page 870 in your pew Bibles. And if you, when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Paul writes, For you see your calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. The base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. 
things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in His presence. But of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. That as it is written, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Title of the message is The Greatness of God. Let's pray. Father, I love you today. I thank you, God, for the salvation that's been given to me in Christ Jesus. I thank you that your grace is greater than my sins and my failure. I thank you that Jesus is alive and saving, sanctifying and changing people today. Thank you for your word that encourages and strengthens and instructs us on how to live for you. I thank you for the privilege of being a pastor, the opportunity to get to share your word with the people whom I love. I thank you for the message you've given me today. And I ask that as I preach this message, that your Holy Spirit would come and Use me as a vessel of honor for your glory. God, today, Father, that that as I speak your word, that your Holy Spirit would take it home into our hearts and to our lives and bring change. Lord, do what only you can do in each one of us. Save those who are lost. Restore those who are backsliding. Encourage those who are discouraged. Strengthen those who are weak. Renew our hope. Renew our faith. Ground us solidly in the gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord. Let the lives that we live testify of your greatness, your goodness, your grace. Be glorified in all things. And I ask this in the name of my Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. As we look at verses 26 through 31, we see that Paul reminds them about how God works in the world. Paul basically tells them that God doesn't work in the way that people work, that God doesn't pick his team in the way that people pick their teams. When we pick our teams, we pick those who have the greatest abilities and will be the greatest asset to getting our team to victory. God does not pick his team like that. As the old saying goes, God does not call the qualified, God qualifies the called. And that's kind of the point that Paul's making in this text. And the two key verses in this passage... Verse 29, that no, glo- no flesh should glory in his presence. And verse 31, that as it is written, he who glories in glory in the Lord. God works in this way. He picks his team in the way that he does. So that all the glory for what happens goes to him. 
God's greatness isn't limited or hindered because we are not great. God himself is great. He is able to use anyone he wants to do anything that he wants. So the central truth I want you to understand today is that the greatness of God ensures my life can glorify God. Greatness of God ensures that my life can glorify God. And there are two reasons this passage gives us. The greatness of God ensures that our lives can glorify God. The first one is that God is great so that I don't have to be. As I mentioned a minute ago, God doesn't pick His team in the way that we might. and He doesn't look for the things that we look for. And that's the point that Paul was making in verses 26, 27, 28. In verse 27, Paul says that that God has chosen the, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, as God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. Now, This is a play on words because in verse 25, Paul has told us that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. The weakness of God is stronger than the strength of man. And in verse 28, he says that God uses the base things of this world and the despised things are what God has chosen. And I like this. This is a powerful thought. The idea of base and despised is basically things that have no... No real earthly value. The world doesn't look at them and think those things are good, those things are great. In fact, the fact that it says they're despised means that the world would look at them and often look down upon those things. And I think a big part of what Paul is talking about, about being base and despised, is the gospel message itself. The gospel message is of a Savior who died on the cross for the sins of the world. In the previous passage, Paul has already explained that the gospel, the message of the gospel, it is, it is foolishness to some. It is, it is offensive to others. God has, has chosen to use what the world despises, and he has chosen to use that to accomplish his will in the world. I mean, the gospel is all about God not doing things the way that we would imagine. Right? God sent his son to, to come to earth in the form of a, of a baby, not, not born in a palace, not from a, a rich family. But even the birth of Jesus was, was cloaked in shame. Right? A, an unmarried woman suddenly coming up pregnant. But God did it. It wasn't that she had messed around. That's a foolish, base, despised sort of a message right to begin with. He's born in a way that did not testify of greatness and glory. He, he, he lived an, an unnoticed life. Uh, even though he did miracles and taught things, he wasn't really widely recognized outside of the world. There was nothing about him particularly that caused people to look at him and say, I bet he is the Messiah. He, he looked like an average, normal Jewish guy that was rejected by his own people. He was betrayed by one of his disciples. He was turned over to the Roman government and murdered in the most shameful way a person could be murdered in that day. I mean, if, if the gospel happened today, 
it would be of a man that America hated. Who was tried and convicted and executed by the government. I mean, how much would we look to that and say, what a great message that is. Well, they didn't look at it like that in those days. They thought it just wasn't wasn't possible. It just didn't seem plausible that the God of glory would use something so plain as a cross, something so despised as a criminal's death to accomplish his will in the world. And yet that is exactly what God did. Everything God has done has always been to show that He does not need great people to do great things. God did not choose Israel because they were great. God chose Israel because He was great. God did not choose Moses because Moses was great. God chose Moses because God was great. Even the Corinthians themselves were not especially great. Look at what Paul says about them in verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, and not many mighty and noble are called. Now Corinth was a city of great wealth. It was filled with all kinds of wise and influential and wealthy people. But the people that God chose to build His church around weren't really those people. And Paul reminds them a little bit later of what they were like. And I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6 because this is so powerful. And look at verse 9. Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Pretty common idea. And then he begins to give what it, some examples of what it is to be unrighteous. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Those were all pretty common Corinthian sins. People in Corinth, that was the, that was the, the, the way the city was. Of course, in our day, this is pretty much the way the world around us is. And I love verse 11, though, because it goes with it. See, the sins in verses 9 and 10, they weren't just theoretical to the people at Corinth. Such were some of you. Some of the people at Corinth had been fornicators. Some had been idolaters. Some had been adulterers. Some had been homosexuals. Some had been sodomites. Some had been thieves. Some had been covetous. Some were drunkards. Some were revilers. Some were extortioners. None were going to inherit the kingdom of God. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. There were one thing before they met Jesus. They were something entirely different. 
after they came to know him. Jesus did not go to those that were respected. Paul, when he went to Corinth, did not reach out to those that were already established and respected. He reached out to people that were common, that were ordinary, that were base, that were despised. Those are the people that Jesus saved. Those are the people that God used to build His church. And what we've got to know is, God does not need us to be great to accomplish His will in the world. God is great already. Think about the apostles. Which of the apostles were great when they met Jesus? Peter was a fisherman. That was a very common, a very base job. Respectable because it provided for the family. But I mean, again, they think about it. They smelled like fish. It's not like they were commonly invited over to people's houses. They, they weren't the good people of the community. They were just common, regular people. There was Matthew, the tax collector, who had basically become a traitor against his own people, who was unjust and a borderline extortioner to, to make the money that he made. And we could go on and on and see that God didn't need them to be great because he was great. When Jesus reached out to them, he reached out to, to ordinary people who were flawed and failing and had issues and things that needed to be overcome. But once they met Jesus, they became something different because of Jesus. And truly, if you can just get the idea that God doesn't need us to be great, maybe I need to get the idea that God doesn't need me to be great. Because he already is. And that is an amazing concept. I love this verse in Ephesians. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And we know that verse. I talked about this in Sunday school this morning. But we, we use that to encourage us in prayer. God can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. We cannot begin to stress the strength and the power of God no matter how big our requests are. But look at what the rest of the verse goes on to say according to the power that works in us. Think about that. That exceedingly abundantly great power is at work in you and I as believers in Jesus Christ. God can work in us and through us and for us to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or imagine. There is, we cannot say, God, use me too, and what we say after that be so great that God cannot do it. Because God is great and He can use anyone He wants to do anything that He wants. But God will. God will work through me to lead people to faith in Jesus. God will work through us to lead people to faith in Jesus. Do you believe that God can work through you to lead people to faith in Jesus? You should. Because God can do anything He wants to do through anyone He wants to do it with. God will work through me. So I can have a strong and a healthy marriage. So having a solid marriage in our culture is difficult at times. But we can have a healthy, godly, strong marriage because God will work through us to enable us to do that. God will work through me to raise godly children who love the Lord. 
Raising godly children who love the Lord is, is not necessarily the norm in our culture anymore. It's not even necessarily the norm in the church anymore. But it doesn't have to be that way because God can and God will work through us to help us raise kids who are not in the world, that do love Him and will serve Him and live for Him all of their days. God will work through me to accomplish His will in the world. Anything the Bible says we are supposed to do is God's will. And God will work through you and me to do this in the world. God is not limited by our past. God is not limited by our flaws. God is not limited by our failures. God is great. And He is so great that nothing you or I do, short of plain and simple disobedience, can hinder what God wants to do in us, through us, and for us. God is greater than our flaws. God is greater than our sins. God is greater than, our, than the weakness of our humanity. God's greatness ensures that we can glorify God in our lives. It absolutely does. God is great. He does not need me to be. And then the second truth is that Jesus completely transforms me. Jesus completely transforms me. He says in verse 30, but of him you are in Christ Jesus. Now, I just want to stop there because that's a powerful thought on its own. Of God are we in Christ Jesus. And what this means is really that you and I can't even take credit for our salvation. See, it wasn't you or I that decided we would come to Jesus and be saved. Because we would never decide that on our own. The Bible says in Romans 3 that there is none good, no, not one. There is none who seeks after God. That is the the natural state of all humanity apart from Jesus Christ. Apart from Jesus, we are not naturally good. Apart from Jesus, we do not seek God. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 6 that no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws them. See that? Any time we had a desire for God, that moment when we said, you know, maybe I want to go to church and hear about Jesus. Maybe this Jesus guy is real and I need what he offers. That wasn't our idea. That was God already at work in us, drawing us to him. Our every desire for God is always a response to God's desire for us. So we heard the gospel. I mean, think about it. How many times... How many, raise your hand, maybe somebody, the very first time you heard about Jesus, you got saved. Raise your hand. Some people do, I suppose. It wasn't me. Apparently it wasn't you. So how many times did you hear the gospel and think, nah. How many times did you hear about Jesus and, and not, realize, not think that was for you? You heard it, you didn't feel anything, you didn't care. It wasn't that you were opposed to it, you weren't angry, it just didn't bother you. And then one day, suddenly, it resonated with you. Suddenly, one day, you understood, wait, that's me. I need Jesus. I have sinned. I am going to hell unless Jesus saves me. 
What made the difference? What changed from one time to the next? It was God. It was God who opened your heart. It was God who opened my heart and helped us to see that we had sinned. And we had fallen short of the glory of God. And we were justly condemned for that sin. But Jesus wanted to save us from the judgment and the punishment that our sins deserved. He is the author, finisher of our faith. Every part of our salvation, it depends on Jesus. It started with Him, it continues with Him, and it will end with Him. That's the way it all works. But in the process of God doing all of these things, He changes us. Like the Corinthians. The Corinthians were one thing before they met Jesus, and now that they had met Jesus, they were something entirely different. And it's the same with us. And Paul lists in verse 29... I'm sorry, verse 30, a series of things that are true about us. These things are are true for every believer in Jesus Christ. So, first, I am wise. Now, what does it mean that I am wise? Wisdom in Scripture refers to basically the understanding of who God is and how God works in the world. Right, the beginning of wisdom is the fear, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? So wisdom in the Bible all revolves around who God is and how God works in the world. So God worked in our lives, said, but, uh, but of Him are you in Christ Jesus who became for us. So Christ became these things. He became wisdom. So again, it was God who worked in us to help us to see our desperate need for Jesus. He helped us to understand that we must call upon Him, we must repent, we must believe, we must be saved. And all through our lives, We are growing in our understanding of who God is and what God is like. We are understanding of how God works in the world and what God does, what may be God and what may not be God. It enables us to say, this is true, this is false, this is right, this is wrong, this is real, this is fiction. All of that knowledge, all of that ability to do that, it comes from God. Jesus, as we grow closer to Him, and we understand who He is and what He's like, He begins to give us this wisdom. This knowledge, this understanding. I think about it like my relationship with Kelly. I know I've told this before, but if you were to come to me after service today and say, I would like Kelly to help me do this, would you think, will, you, will Kelly help me do this? My response to you will be, I think you should ask Kelly. Right? At no point in time in my life will I ever cause her to, to, to uh, call it be, my mind, sorry, will I ever say yes or no for something she will or will not do. I know better than that. I've been married longer than a week. I know that's not the right answer. At the same time, in my mind, I have an idea of what she'll say. And I would say I'm right about 98% of the time. Not because of anything necessarily in me, but I know my wife well enough to know what she's likely to do and what she's not likely to do. I know what she wants to do and what she doesn't want to do, what she likes and what she dislikes. I've grown in my wisdom and my understanding of who she is, how she works, and so I know what she might and might not do. In a similar way, the more I grow in my relationship with Jesus, the more I begin to recognize His will and His ways in the world and in my life. He, he gives this to me. He gives me this understanding of who He is and what He would do, and I become wise through Jesus. So I'm wise, but I, I am righteous. Jesus has become for us 
righteousness. And this one is, is huge. I am righteous. A righteous in Scripture, it refers to our, our standing with God, basically. How God sees us. The world sees people in one way, right? The world, the world remembers our past. The world knows who we were in our past life. The world often evaluates us in light of those things. More than one person that I knew in my past life has said, You're a preacher? Really? Wow. Right? More than one person was surprised and confused that God would call me into the ministry. And so the world looks at things. But God doesn't look at us in that way. God does not see us as we were. He sees us as we are. And as we are, it's righteous through Christ. And this is important because apart from Christ, again, we're, we're not righteous. Apart from Christ, we are unrighteous. Isaiah says... That all of our, our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. Now the idea of filthy rags is pretty gross, honestly. Because of the image that, it, that Isaiah was using. And there were a couple of word pictures that he was using. But one in particular was that of rags that was used to wrap up lepers. If you've ever read about leprosy, you know that they had sores that ran and oozed and were gross and foul smelling and... And even in my understanding, they were contagious. The stuff that ran out was contagious. And in an effort to, to keep that stuff from just running all over the place, lepers would wrap themselves up with these rags. And it would hold it and it would sop it up. And then when it got so, I guess, gross that it was leaking through, they would take those rags and they would burn them. Because the rags couldn't be used for anything. I mean, there was no cleaning them. They were done. You burned them, you got rid of them. Now, you and I, we probably can't even imagine touching something like that, right? I mean, I'm not going to. If I see it, I'm touching it with a shovel, laying my bare hands, no way. Can you imagine holding it up like, look look at what I did. Look at how great I am. You know, the reality is when we try to say how good we are to God, that's what we're doing. We're lifting up filthy rags to Him and saying, look at me. Be proud of me. Look at what I've done. And what's interesting about what Isaiah says is, he doesn't mean our, at our worst we're like filthy rags. No, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. The best you and I can do apart from Jesus are filthy putrid rags. That, that's, that's the best we can do without Jesus. But with Jesus we are something different. Second Corinthians, Paul writes that, That we are the righteousness of God in Christ. That His righteousness has been given to us. Think about how great that is. The moment that you and I, we call upon Jesus, all of that sin and all of our unrighteousness, all of our wickedness is taken away. And in its place is given righteousness and holiness and purity. So when God looks at a believer, He doesn't see their past sins or their past failures. God sees them as righteous in Christ, righteous because of Christ. And as a believer today, you can say, I am righteous because Jesus has made us righteous. The next is I am sanctified, right? Jesus has also become for us sanctification. 
Sanctification is the process of becoming like Jesus. Even though God counts us as righteous the moment we're saved, we're not all that we should be at that moment, are we? Chances are, if we were to go around the room and be honest, we could all list ways that we're not like Jesus. The attitudes, actions, priorities, reactions, any number of issues that we wrestle with and we struggle with that we're not as we should be. But even though we're not all that we should be, we're not all that we're going to be either. Jesus is at work in our lives, making us into something new. Hopefully all of us can look at our lives and, and we can see legitimate differences from to where we are today to where we were a year ago to where we were two years ago to where we were when we were first saved. That Jesus is working in us and making us new. And he, he is always at work. I mean, everything that He does in our lives in speaking to us through Scripture, meeting with us in prayer, answering prayer, allowing trials and tribulations to come into our life. All of this is His way of working to help us become more like Him. Now, we have to cooperate for sure. Ephesians talks about stripping off the old nature and putting on the new. So we, we have work to do. I mean, as Jesus reveals to us areas of our life that need to change, He's not going to drag us down and put his elbow on our melon until we give up and we do it, he's going to say, this is wrong. Stop doing that. Start doing this instead. But you need to start doing this and, and stop doing that. He is going to show us areas that where we need to change. Now, it's up to us at that point to make the changes. But the ability to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the ability to become more and more like Jesus, it is something that Jesus does for us. He strengthens us. He enables us. He shows us the things that need to be done. I mean, in, in all honesty, all we have to do is just follow His lead. And He will continually renew us and continually transform us and continually help us to grow until we are more and more like Him. We are sanctified. We are being sanctified because of His work in our lives. And then the final one is that I am redeemed. And has become for us redemption. And redemption there, it means to buy. We often think of it as saved, and it was saved. But redeem means to, to be bought. And apart from Christ, we were slaves to our sinful nature. And we did what our sinful nature wanted us to do. And that life of slavery to the sinful nature, it ends in hell, is what the Bible says. The wages of these sins is death. But God, through Jesus, He, he bought us from that slavery. And He brought us out of the, the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. He, he took us from being His enemies and He made us His sons. He, he purchased us. He saved us. He redeemed us. How great is that? To know that that the reason I'm not a slave to my sinful nature is not because I turned over a new leaf and suddenly overcame it. The reason I'm not who I was isn't because I'm just a better person. It's because Jesus bought me and Jesus changed me and Jesus set me free from that to live a new life. I have been redeemed. You, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been redeemed. You don't have to be a slave to your sinful nature anymore. You don't have to do what your sinful nature desires. You, you have been freed from that to be a servant and a son of God. How great is that? And all of this, it's not because you and I 
did it. We didn't work these things up. We didn't change these things ourselves. Jesus did this for us. And a person who is all of those things, that's not the same person that lived before. That is, a, that is an entirely different person. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5, that you're a brand new creation. We're not the same anymore. All of this newness of life and all of this transformation, it is because of Jesus. So Paul says in verse 31, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Our is pride over the changes that have been made in our lives. It must always revolve around Jesus. I'm glad Jesus saved me. I'm glad Jesus changed me. I'm glad Jesus has brought me to where I am. Because it's, it's all about what He has done and nothing really about me. On my own, I never would have changed. In my natural self, shamefully, I, I still, still am that person in some ways. Jesus has saved me and Jesus has changed me and who I am now it's not because of, of me. It's because of Jesus. And so He is so great and He is so good and He is so awesome that no matter where we are or what we've done He can save us from that. He can wash away the filth of the past. He can make us into a new creation. He can take the foolish and make them wise. He can take the unrighteous and make them righteous. He can take those that are not at all like Christ and He can make them like Christ. And He can take those that are slaves to sin and He can redeem them and set them free in Christ. Because of how great He is, it's a guarantee that your life and mine can glorify God. Absolutely. And always. Let's stand as our musicians come forward.